Okay, welcome everyone. Um, my name's Chris Bennett and I'm the Nordics Recruitment Manager. Um, I connect talented freelancers with pioneering tech companies. That's my bit done. So let's have some introductions to the panel. Uh, Rochelle first. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Rochelle, uh, Rochelle Dave, uh, that's my full name. Um, I came to Berlin uh, like seven years ago to work for Zalando, um, worked there for five and a half years um, in different uh, uh, product areas. Uh, first I started with uh, building mobile apps uh, for Zalando, Android, and then iOS as well. And uh, then I moved to some internal uh, product areas as well for innovation and employee feedback and performance evaluation. And uh, before that, I had my own startup um, related to uh, storing product warranties and invoices for the customers and solving the problem uh, related to that. Uh, currently, I'm working at Klarna. Um, I'm taking care of consumer concept and moving Klarna from uh, very transaction-centric towards uh, customer-focused product development and helping many teams uh, within Klarna uh, to uh, to understand and, of course, to provide customer data in most efficient uh, way uh, on the use case uh, basis as well. And, of course, uh, related to that, uh, compliance, regulations, uh, GDPR, all those things uh, come in play as well. Uh, that's my introduction. Thank you. Fantastic, Rochelle. Uh, Daniel? Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Chris. Uh, so I'm Daniel Thomason. I am a, an Australian uh, by birth and now a Berliner by adoption, I think. Um, I've been in products for four or five years now. I got into it sort of via a bit of a strange entrepreneurial pathway. I started my own escape room in Sydney before we left. Uh, and while that was fun, it was a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears for limited scale. And so a friend of mine, when they saw how much I enjoyed bringing something to life, recommended that I get into products. And uh, I've sort of fallen in love with being in this space ever since. Uh, before the escape room, I was actually an economist. So um, it's nice to be on the side of the world causing the problems rather than being a central banker, tearing my hair out about all of the problems that the fintech companies are causing. So... Yeah, I've been at N26 for the last uh, 13 months now, working in a compliance products role. So on our KYC system, helping us find a way to be um, completely compliant and uh, look after our customers and safeguard our, our, our customers and our businesses' money, um, while also giving them a world-class experience, which has been uh, a heck of a challenge, uh, but one that I've really enjoyed uh, embracing. So I'm really excited to talk to the uh, the other three of you uh, today about um, that kind of intelligent, friendly, personalized fintech experience. Fantastic. Uh, Babel? Um, you're on mute. <laughs> Great start. Amazing start. Thanks. <laughs> so, uh, read my lips. Uh, super happy to be here. Uh, really excited talking to all of you guys. Uh, I'm uh, Babel Pulley. I'm the VP of product at uh, North Mill Bank. Uh, been here uh, for quite a while. We were I was employee number twelve. Uh, we're since then grown to one hundred fifty people in three countries. And what I do is I, I uh, manage uh, the number of product managers that we have. We're not uh, as big as uh, some of you here, but um, I make sure that they have 
the tools and processes and people that they need to actually make sure that our products are uh, heading the way we, we want them to head. Um, and North Mill Bank is uh, actually the, we were the company next after Klarna uh, to receive a Swedish banking license uh, in 2019. So quite a new bank. And what we want to do is to uh, improve people's financial life. That's the mission statement. Fantastic, Babel. Nice. Uh, and Bogdan? Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, super um, exciting panel, I guess. So um, I come from Revolut. Um, I started about four years ago when the company was uh, much smaller in size. I started as a country manager for Russia and uh, launched our operations in that country and also looked after our launch in India. And uh, we had to shut down, but anyways, have some good uh, stories from there. And um, then I moved on to operationalizing our European banking license in Lithuania. And for the past uh, year or so, I've been leading a team at Revolut called New Bets. And, 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 and the team is looking into uh, sort of creating new business lines within the group. Um, so we, we're looking into insurance, e-commerce, and uh, also some high-risk high stuff like uh, cash top-ups and uh, stuff like that. Um, yeah, th that's pretty much it, I guess. Thank you for those introductions. Really appreciate that. Um, so the context behind today is how to develop intelligent and personal consumer fintech products. Uh, for the listeners, um, I've asked each person to bring a question or a topic. And so we'll be going through each question um, and we'll be discussing it um, for everyone to discuss. Yeah. So the first question uh, sent to me by Babel over at North Mill is how can a company maintain speed in product development when operating in a highly regulated market? Uh, so Babel, just give us some context behind your question. Well, as, as some of the guys uh, already mentioned, they're, they're working in, uh, Daniel, for example, KYC or Russian uh, mentioned GDPR, Bogdan, and, and uh, probably in all the spaces. Uh, like th there is a lot of stuff to consider. Uh, and as a bank, uh, I'd say it's, um, you have the kind of pressure uh, where you, you can't take uh, risks when it comes to this. But I think there, there is a way to balance that and to, to be able to move forward uh, with proper speed um, to continue to deliver good products and good good value to the customers. Um, the way I think like you have to, to, to do that is, is in two parts. The first one is you have to have the proper mindset and culture. Um, so just not accept that uh, what's been done up until now, especially within banking, um, just because everyone's doing something when it comes to, to the compliance part doesn't mean that it has to be that way. Uh, you have to be able to think outside the box and, and challenge that as well. And and I have to, to say this so that our PR guy doesn't kill me. I don't mean that you should break any laws, uh, but just rather uh, rethink stuff and, and challenge that and have that as part of your mindset and culture. Um, and the second part, I think um, the way you can maintain speed is by, by the technology. So... Uh, all of, the, all of the companies represented here uh, have such a, a architecture and infrastructure that I think can can contribute to the speed um, in, in such a way that like it, we have we're developing uh, products in, in such a pace that we can actually spend the time on on the compliance uh, to have it up to par. 
and to involve the, the stakeholders, uh, if it's legal or compliance or whoever, uh, early on, uh, so that they don't come in with any surprises in the end before you're supposed to launch with um, with any um, any objections, basically. So that's my take on it. Well, what's yours for Daniel? Well, sort of. Uh... It's it's the it's the existential question. I think there was a it was the right one. I I avoided asking this exact same question because I assumed someone else would ask it as the critical uh, kind of tension for product managers. Um, and I think your last point, Babel, was was one of the most interesting ones. Saying bringing in stakeholders early. This was the advice I always got to make sure legals brought in early, make sure compliance is brought in early. But almost one of one of the things that I've started to contemplate recently is maybe this is the wrong model. Maybe this is a mindset of treating these stakeholders as somehow external to the process and they need to be brought into the room. I wonder, and, and I'd really be interested in, the, in how the rest of you are dealing with this at your companies, is there a better model where perhaps uh, the team has an embedded function of compliance, of legal, of AML, you name it, where it's not a bringing in process, it's a there's by default someone in the room who can speak for these things um, from day one. This is not how we're doing it, but it's something that I've been sort of marinating on recently, as it were. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I can actually jump in uh, before you ask me because we do follow that pattern at Klarna. Uh, for example, uh, in our domain, uh, we have lawyers and compliance experts uh, embedded into all those discovery processes. Uh, I can give you an example. When we went uh, to when we went live in Australia, uh, we went through the entire discovery phase, but where we made sure that we first understand the regulatory aspects, uh, what needs to be done uh, when we launch a certain product. Uh, do we need to do KYC for all customers when they want to buy with certain product? Because that might not be true in all the markets, especially for uh, Klarna, uh, since it's operating in many different levels uh, from the payments perspective. So, uh, and then of course the compliance uh, part comes in as well, where we uh, join together um, to see like what are the requirements for customer due diligence, ongoing due diligence as well, enhanced due diligence. So all those aspects we cover we make sure that we understand that and then plan the customer journey based on that. And that helped us a lot actually, this kind of model to, to have better solutions for our customers to actually onboard them very easily as well. And my take is that we need to embrace regulations in such a way that how can we create innovation out of those regulations? That is very important and ultimately of course, help customers to make their lives smoother and uh, their experience uh, in uh, in the best way possible. How can we make that uh, complying with the regulations and everything? So this helped us a lot where we uh, not just involve them, but they are part of the whole discovery process. Some of them are even driving actually such discovery processes uh, from time to time when it's needed. Um, and this uh, model, we are applying it uh, also in many different markets that uh, we are going live or even existing markets. What's your thoughts, Bogdan? You're muted. Yeah, sorry about that. We'll get uh, that on that. <laughs> very important, but uh, I can repeat. <laughs> yeah, approach is very similar at, at Revolut, I guess. Uh, 
So it's a very big company now, right? It's uh, it employs over three thousand people, and uh, we've got, uh, I believe, uh, fifteen million retail customers, hundreds of thousands of businesses, right? So uh, we've got a um, huge, important governance in place, right? It's very different from uh, you know three, four years ago when uh, dealing with compliance regulation was uh, quite messy, to be honest. Now we've got streamlined processes, we've got committees, uh, we've got technology that we built in-house to deal with those things, right? We involve, um, uh, we call it second line of defense, right? Second line, including risk compliance people. Very early on in the process of uh, developing new products, even new features, right? No feature can go live without getting uh, the necessary approvals and necessary approvals are essentially defined by the process and we try to automate uh, it as much as possible, right? So that the job of compliance manager or, or risk manager is to come, you know, um, to job in the morning, see the dashboard, see incoming tickets, right? Review, uh, approve, and uh, that should be it. And um, yeah, I, I believe it's going to be a very important competitive advantages for fintechs um, in uh, future. Uh, because this defines the speed, right? Uh, at least for us, compliance and regulation is bottleneck for, for product developments. This is sort of uh, the slowest bit, I'd say, for majority of our products. So um, you are as good as, as um, uh, sort of fast you can deal with, uh, with this uh, requirements. And uh, that is why we build stuff in-house to be able to get that, uh, that edge I guess just following up from that, if I can, Chris, mm. just, it was sort of interesting. You said Bogdan about committees and sort of these processes building in. I get that these are these are necessary, and it's it's good to solidify a necessary process. But it's almost the definition for me of slow calcification. Like it reminds me of my days at the central bank. We had committees for everything, and everything passed through several layers. How are you? How at Revolut are you fighting this? I guess, gravitational pull of, of compliance and of regulation slowing things down over time by default almost. Yeah, I guess, um, so regulators stipulate some exact rules on how you need to deal with uh, stuff, right? So there is limited freedom in how you can approach uh, sign off from second line. But where you have freedom is process and technology, right? So we try to speed things up uh, using these two ledgers, essentially. And we've got, um, uh, you know, business uh, engineers who are working on the processes. We've got internal tools team. It's a you know, full stack product team who works on uh, internal tools, including including the tools for second line. And, uh, you know, we're trying to make it as fast as possible. Probably there is some limit to how fast it, it can go with uh, in a world of committees and uh, governance. Uh, but I'm not sure where we've approached it yet. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, it would be interesting to learn how how, how have you uh, approached this this task? Do you have committees inside, or how do you deal with uh, the regulatory burden? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe Babel, we can circle back to, uh, yeah, to yeah. how how North uh, does it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'd say like the, from what you guys described, uh, I'd say it's mostly similar to what Bogdan says, but uh, of course on a, a quite smaller scale. Uh, try to, to use uh, the processes and the tools available uh, to actually make sure that we have these checks in place. Uh, because as he says, like there, there there is a requirement on what what these checks can be like. Uh, so uh, 
we lost someone, I think. But anyhow, um, yeah, I believe that um, that's the way to do it for now, at least. And of course, if if it would be possible to to do it any other way, um, that would uh, of course be really, really uh, positive. But for now, we have a, a process where actually we make sure that the people who need to review stuff uh, get it early on, uh, because we we've been in situations where. Uh, you think you're done, and legal comes in has a has a point. You have to start over, and it kind of becomes like this waterfall approach uh, to doing stuff. Uh, so, if it's possible to include people uh, as early as possible, I think that's that's the best way. And uh, you have to be at a certain level, of course, uh, if it's a new product uh, when you involve them. Yeah, makes sense. Perfect, um, Babel. Do you feel like your questions answered there? So, uh, at least, at least now I know uh, how the the other uh, peers are doing it. Actually, um, seems like everyone wants improvement, um, but definitely, I'm I'm happy for now. It sounds it's... like everyone doesn't want regulation. To be honest, <laughs> at least we're all suffering together. That's the main thing. <laughs> um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that question, Babel. Um, so, second question, uh, Rashil. Um, Rashil's question was, how do we smoothly onboard our consumer and keep them within the fintech space? So Rashil, give us some context around why, why you asked that question. Yeah, sure. It's very much connected to what uh, we were just discussing about the question as well, that uh, when we have a lot of regulations uh, to cover, how to make sure that when we onboard new customers, and uh, if your company has also uh, many more offerings, not just one financial product, but various financial products in, uh, in a particular market, how to make sure that returning customers also take the advantage of the onboarding that they have already done before. Um, for example, we have a Plana card and then Plana bank account is also launched now in Germany just uh, uh, this week, actually. Um, so we wanted to make sure that from the compliance and KYC perspective, uh, we offer them a smooth path uh, during the onboarding, like when we are onboarding new customers. So let's say a customer is applying for a Klarna card. Uh, they go through this whole flow with the strong customer authentication and uh, of course, uh, verifying their phone number and email address. And then of course, uh, we would verify their contact details uh, with the KYC process as well, uh, with their document ID or uh, in different ways. Um, that uh, has to be, of course, uh, stored somewhere very securely. And then when customer wants to apply for other regulated product, KYC regulated product, they just need to confirm their selections and authenticate themselves. And then they can go through this process very easily. Not just that, apart from that, uh, we also have to make sure that the steps uh, that we have for onboarding customers is reduced, but when they want to change their addresses when they move, the due diligence uh, can also be done in the background uh, unless and until it fails uh, that we need to ask customers. Um, it, it can be very easily, all those checks can be performed very, very easily and uh, uh, that can generate a very smooth experience for our customers. So I want to know like how you guys are dealing with uh, these problems uh, in your problem spaces, in your areas, in your company. Uh, because for us, it was a big uh, kind of a shift 
that we made at Klarna, uh, as especially uh, my team, where we wanted to move from uh, move towards very this consumer centric product development world. And doesn't matter how many financial products we can offer to the customers, if we have a concrete idea of the customer, who the customer is, if we can identify them easily, and then if we can onboard them very smoothly to one financial product that can be, of course, all those details can be easily used by other products. And uh, that would create a very big, like very good customer experience and a good customer impact as well from, uh, from our perspective. So I would like to know your thoughts about uh, how you guys are dealing with uh, such situations. Does anyone want to take the lead on this one? Yeah, maybe I can start because I've seen this problem too. Um, yeah. I've encountered it when uh, dealing with FATCA CRS regulation, right? And when launching our uh, bank in Lithuania. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, our context is there are about 10 companies in the group, maybe even more. And depending on the product, uh, either it's, uh, you know, um, e-money wallet or trading, customers are getting services from different companies, right? And uh, even though it's Revolut Group, in the legal world, these are different companies. They need to have some arrangements between them, intra-company agreements to share data, right? They have uh, separate regulatory requirements to uh, onboard customers, do KYC, as, as, as Ruchil mentioned, and so on, right? So, um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a huge mess for us uh, until recently, and we still need to solve it. Problem with this task is, um, it, I guess it never gets the right level of priority. It's very difficult to get to it because this is infrastructure, sort of infrastructure thing, right? It's not customer facing and customer facing stuff always wins, right? Because this is business priority. Yeah, but in terms of uh, smoothness of processes, in terms of, um, you know, 100% complying with regulation, yeah, it's very important to solve that stuff in the legal world, in the technical world, and to make life easier for customer, right? So they, they don't need to uh, redo their KYC with various entities of the same group. They don't need to submit their um, FATCA CRS data, you know, several times a year, even within a, within a um, sort of single app, let's say of N26 or Revolut or Klarna, right? Uh, yeah, so... It almost feels like there's a room for a uh, you know a standalone company to help sort of solve this for fintechs. Um, yeah, I don't know how things about this at uh, North Milan N26 guys. Yeah, similar challenges I'd say. Uh, but like what I was uh, thinking about when I when I saw this question is uh, you you've been on that topic a bit. Um, it's for me, uh, when onboarding a new customer, at least you need to be able to to get them through the door uh, as smoothly as possible. And I think that's that's like uh, something that I've seen uh, in, in in this space that has improved a whole lot. Uh, as you all know, uh, like uh, there are not these uh, long forms, and you don't have to come in physically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that what you had to do before. But I think there's still like area for improvement. So um, my take on it is uh, that you need to kind of show the, the users some kind of value as early as possible and require, uh, like, just take the minimum amount you need uh, in terms of efforts from the users uh, in the beginning and then continuously ask for more uh, when you absolutely have to. 
um, I've seen like I've seen uh, both here at Northmill, but uh, also other uh, other competitors doing that quite well. Uh, so uh, just because you previously you used, you used to ask ten questions, uh, now you can ask one, have them through the door, and then when they actually start using something, then ask a bit more. Uh, so that was my take on it. And then the, like the the part of keeping them uh, with us, I was I started thinking about the the, uh, the user journey. Uh, so the onboarding is just one part of that, and you, you're uh, been on that topic as well. When you have uh, multiple products, um, you have to think of like what's the next step, addressing the the, the continuous touch points. Uh, so when are we relevant? How are we relevant? Um, yeah, that was my thinking on it. Daniel, yeah, I think uh, it's very similar thinking to Baba, like our evolution this year has been starting to think of what's necessary for customer onboarding moving away from this monolithic view of onboarding equals this stuff to being much more of a modular tailored this customer needs these things right now and then later they might need something else and then i think to sort of circle back to your question or to your point bogdan where we're falling short is similar to you there are customers i have this sort of nightmare list in my head of poor customers who've had to send us the same information multiple times and they're on this horrible horrible merry-go-round with us and so and i think what this stems from is almost the nature of being a fintech startup means that you're so focused on what's right in front of you that you forget that banking is a long-term game and that what you're buying like like buying a customer for what is often quite a lot of money to buy that click on Google only makes sense if you're going to get a good lifetime. And thinking of customers in terms of this lifetime suddenly shifts you to thinking, okay, we're going to need to re-KYC them in a few years' time. They're going to want to do some sort of high-value transaction at some point in their lifespan, hopefully. So at that point, we're going to need to know their source of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. So just having someone or some team or some time set aside even to look beyond the horizon of get the customer in get them their card we're done i think we'll start to we'll start to see this shift in a lot of companies n26 revolut klana etc like as as they start to to sort of mature people will have the time and the breathing space to start of thinking of customers as long-term prospects and as prospects where we can optimize for the for the life cycle rather than just in the door drop them in the app kind of thing and then these sort of problems will start to start to solve themselves a lot more because we won't be trying to solve problems as they turn up we'll be able to solve them before they turn up i guess yeah definitely agree um, by the way i think american american fintechs are much better in that uh thinking than european for some reason but if you look at chime cash app all of these guys are you know uh very very um sort of um focused on uh customer acquisition cost vs customer lifetime value right and uh they're treating it like an internet like a proper internet product like but many fintechs in in europe uh don't do that they they see it as a you know banking product instead so do you think it's a maturity of the space in america versus europe or is it a cultural thing what's your read yeah i think it's a um cultural thing one and a lot of i mean cash app was started by uh jack dorsey right who's an internet entrepreneur so he's his thinking is clear here and uh, second i think um 
interchange in America is 10 times higher than in Europe, right? Because it's kept here. So they have a very sort of proper way to capitalize, to monetize their customers. And that's why they, they're thinking about it from, from day one. While for many European fintechs, at least who, who are in banking, I think it's um, you know long-term game. Let's start with a transactional business and then launch credit and scale it. And that's when we that's when we'll make money. So whatever, let's just get some customers today. Burn VC money and hope. And, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have like two points there actually. One one thing I think when you compare the US market to the European market, there are two challenges. Like one is in the US, the regulations are not as strict as we have in the Europe. That makes things much easier. I think they are ramping up uh, these things in the US as well uh, because uh, uh, we are, I mean, Klana is uh, uh, quite becoming quite big in the US and then this is something we are also uh, challenging ourselves with. Uh, but in, in European markets, of course, this is much harder because of the uh, harder regulations and restrictions we also have. And the second thing is it's all about uh, customer mindset. I think a lot of fintechs, uh, especially in the Europe, uh, they were missing this point earlier. Uh, even then, like when N26 started, like I had an experience, like I had to go to the post office to do this uh, post-tident and everything. Although it was much easier, of course, than my Deutsche Bank experience that I had. Um, still, like this became much, much better uh, since now you can do it online with the video edit, et cetera, and uh, so on and so forth. So that customer experience is something uh, that I think was missing uh, when early on, like uh, fintech uh, companies started operating in the European context. Uh, but definitely this mindset is becoming much, much popular and uh, a lot of fintech companies understand why it is important and how can we embrace this uh, uh, to make uh, not just our products better, but uh, the uh, comparing this uh, whole customer life cycle, the value and the cost um, uh, of acquisition as well. And uh, that helps actually companies to rethink uh, about this entire journey for the customers. But uh, that was, uh, thanks a lot. That's uh, like interesting to hear that you guys are also having these challenges in your company. And it's not just uh, something where we, how we were facing <laughs> or what we were facing. And uh, interesting to hear your uh, thoughts on that. The theme of this roundtable is group therapy, I think, Chris. <laughs> I know, like, yeah, yeah. Everyone's <laughs> suffering the same. A lot, <laughs> lot of people sharing problems, not too many answers. <laughs> no, brilliant. No, really appreciate that, Rashil. Um, okay, next question, uh, Bogdan. So your question was around building ben beneficial products for the consumer versus the ability for fintech companies to remain profitable. So um bogdan give us some context around kind of your statement there and the questions around it yeah yeah so i guess we, we've all started with this uh sort of very basic idea let's remove fees and make the uh you know, pricing for financial services super transparent right and it was a world where vcs were focusing on growth uh so prof profitability was a future concern let's say uh so then happened um you know uber Later, uh, WeWork, then COVID emphasized the issue, right? So now the world has shifted, at least VCs have shifted into profitability. And this has pushed um, fintechs to sort of start thinking about it too, prematurely maybe even. And then, so what we see today is 
um, fintechs, neobanks are introducing this, um, you know, optimizations, some slight fees, starting doing it, right? And uh, I'm sure this is sort of short-term thing just to weather the crisis, but long-term, it turned out credit is a very difficult business, right? It's heavily regulated, very difficult to scale it, takes years uh, to uh, build a profitable book, right? And uh, now in a world where we need to think about profitability, um, and I believe post-COVID world is going to be, uh, you know, profitability focused, not growth. What do we do, right? And how do we uh, sort of sustain our initial vision of uh, keeping the fees transparent and, uh, you know, costs uh, low? So, uh, you know, it would be interesting to, to, to get your take on this guy. It's a big question, that. This is the golden question. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it also comes back to when I first got into the fintech space, coming from the central banking background, I came in with a set of completely incorrect expectations about how fintechs were going to make money. Because the traditional banking sector, right? Banks make money on net interest income. Like the, the big Australian banks, there are four big Australian banks, they vary between something like 60 and 75% of their revenue comes from net interest income. Fintechs, it's completely turned on its head. Net interest income is a rounding error, essentially, and all the rest comes from interchange, comes from fees, um, and, and all of the sort of stuff where the big banks, the traditional banks, sort of consider that income a, a kind of cute business bit. And I think this is, the, this is the fascinating point we're at for the fintech space. The, the, sources of, the sources of revenue aren't scaling as fast as we want to. And yet, as you said, Bogdan, the, that net interest income, that doesn't come for free. You can't build that book up overnight. And this is where I think the big banks are starting to get their revenge and starting to see the sort of the, the challenger banks hit a wall a little bit. And I'm sure there's some Deutsche Bank um, executives laughing in their ivory towers at uh, at how much trouble we've had building some credit businesses. Um, but yeah, I like I actually haven't seen a way to square this circle yet, honestly. Like I haven't seen anyone, any any neo bank present a sort of model that says, okay, this is the really clear path forward. Um, we've seen attempts in the credit area. We've seen attempts to kind of keep going down that membership. Uh, membership sort of direction. We've seen attempts to make more out of travel interchange, but it's all a lot under pressure. Um, so yeah, so for me, this is the kind of fascinating question that I've been contemplating ever since getting into the into the fintech industry and haven't come up with an answer yet. So I'm really interested to hear hear what the rest of you have to say about this one. Uh, uh, super super interesting question. Uh, I like. My take on this, and, and when it comes to banking, uh, as you said, like uh, at least for traditional banks, it's not an interest income. Um, but you, when you look at banking um, at its essence, uh, it's it's just that it's it's savings, it's credits, insurances, etc. Um, what I think like sometimes is missed or maybe even misinterpreted, especially in the fintech space, is like we're not allowed to charge our customers. Like we even read some uh, companies. Uh, openly writing about okay, our our, our uh, employees misunderstood us. They think we can't charge uh, anything, right? Um, I I truly believe that like customers are are willing to pay for for good good value uh, for good products, and um, I I see that like the way uh, a lot of us here uh, can do that is 
as using technology uh, once again as like we can we can scale better we're we're more flexible we can probably grow and acquire more customers uh, cheaper and serve more customers cheaper and in that way probably cut cut down on those costs that people are are already paying to to their traditional banks um, but it comes down to having a healthy business model because this is a, a like banking is a long term commitment especially when you look at the traditional ones um people have usually a main bank and and they're they're rarely leaving it uh, so it that um, part of the the cost of acquiring customers it's hard to get a customer you need to have a long term uh, relationship with them and for that to happen you need to have a healthy business as well like to gain the trust of the users okay this is someone who knows uh, how to be sustainable uh, that will be here for a long time but does the does the long term relationship thing bring us back to Bogdan's point of needing to build up a credit book? Because I mean, the way the way that banks then make money off those long term customers is that eventually you take out a mortgage with Deutsche Bank with uh, whoever um, Commerzbank, Bank, and that's and suddenly that's the big dollars they've paid they, they've paid up front. They've given you the we've, you've had the current account with us, and then suddenly when you start taking out the loans that's when we really like start to, to start to extract the value is that where we where we lead back to inevitably or is there another path forward for the neobanks for the for the fintechs yeah. uh, that's a great question but uh, yeah Russell, go ahead uh, klarna does it uh, a bit differently so uh, exactly and uh, that's uh, that is something actually i think will become more and more popular it is already becoming quite popular um, it's basically one of the main products is like a user can buy now and then pay later uh, with Klarna. And Klarna gives this small amount loans basically and charges uh, uh, small fees basically. So if you're buying an iPhone worth 1000 uh, euros and then you want to pay it in installments, like four installments, then you have to pay a bit extra, let's say 10 euros or 15 euros extra ultimately on top of uh, 1000 euros and then you can pay it very flexibly and then you can of course change those options as well uh, going further that if you cannot pay it in four months then you can probably extend it as well and so on and so forth so traditional banks are doing it with this loan and mortgage uh, etc on this basis and probably that is something uh, some other fintech companies uh, might want to capture but how Klarna is doing is, uh, is this whole small loan model, basically, that uh, giving credits to, to the customers in a small amount and uh, making sure that, okay, uh, uh, they have this willingness to pay as well. They, they, we, of course, do this checks as well um, uh, to make sure that uh, they can pay this amount back ultimately uh, and we charge uh, on top of that some small interest fees. And that is proving, at least like when Klarna started, uh, uh, that that was the business model and it is still continuing in different forms. And that is something uh, very interesting, I would say, from business model perspective that can uh, help uh, create uh, this kind of profitability aspects uh, for fintech companies. Another thing is uh, definitely the deposits. I mean, I know that uh, a lot of like new age fintech companies, people use it for very like, short-term transactions in a way that they they are afraid to have salary accounts uh, in uh, uh, in those new age banks because uh, that is something uh, that they don't have full trust on. Uh, but this is changing. I mean, 
Uh, I know, for example, uh, I'm giving this example of N26 because I'm the customer and I have a lot of friends who are the customers. So uh, they, uh, we, I, I don't still have uh, salary, my salary account there. And, uh, but a lot of friends are, are having this. And this can also change the whole perspective that how new edge fintech companies can use these deposits to drive growth and profit profitability uh, on, in, from that aspect so that they can probably also allow uh, loans. I think N26 now allows this as well and so on and so forth, like extra credit to the customers and then uh, charging uh, a small fees or interest fees on top of that. So, of course, we need to tweak business models in such a way, uh, of course, understand customers' pain points, their problems, and how can we actually provide them uh, value with, of course, uh, a bit of fees that uh, we need to charge them. And that is totally fine if we make it very transparent towards the customers, if we make it, uh, make them understand that why we are doing this and uh, what, uh, how are we helping them actually by doing this. And we saw actually a lot of testing that we did with Klarna uh, and especially this pay later payment methods that we have, uh, that when you make it absolutely clear and transparent towards the customer that this is what we are going to charge every month, uh, these are the installments, these, these are the extra fees and everything, they are willing to pay this uh, uh, for their advantage actually. So it's creating kind of a win-win situation. So that's, that is something uh, like, I have learned uh, in Klarna as well that uh, tweaking this business models uh, and improving them, uh, of course, while helping customers uh, with the transparency uh, could really help drive profitability for fintech products. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Thanks guys. And I think, uh, yeah, again, US companies are doing this great, right? Uh, take Cash App. I think they've, uh, so what, what, what they have is a P2P platform essentially, yet they found a way to monetize. Majority of their revenues come from uh, businesses who accept payments through, through, uh, through Cash App. And this is great, right? Acquiring great business. They essentially, uh, they, they're now into, into the business of Visa MasterCard. And uh, so at Revolut, we're trying to take similar approach. So we're trying uh, to think about how to monetize our user base and, and how to monetize our platform that we have, right? So one example is, so we have a, a you know, huge amount of business customers and retail customers. So let's connect them uh, in uh, Revolut app so they can trade directly in our app. And maybe we can sort of be a marketplace like Amazon, right? Or um, yeah, I guess another example is uh, white labeling the platform. So a business, sorry, banking as a service is becoming a huge thing, right? Companies like Solaris Bank in uh, Germany, Marketa in the US are getting a lot of traction and uh, there is growing demand for it. So all, all of our companies have this uh, amazing platforms that we've built um, you know, for the uh, uh, past several years. Uh, so we can easily build external APIs and uh, you know, give it out to other fintechs. So things, yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's not only credit and I think there's room for creativity here and, uh, um, yeah, creating, creating value for our shareholders and, and users, uh, through, through other ways. Yeah. I guess the credit play is an interesting, was always an interesting one for me because it essentially leads a neo bank back to becoming a traditional bank with an app. Uh, you, you, your yeah, balance sheet, your, your, your P and L looks just like a, a normal bank. You just have a nicer app. And so I think like the stuff that you just talked about Bogdan, this feels much more like FinTech as a completely a revolutionary 
industry rather than just a sort of eat the eat the traditional bank's lunch uh, sort of industry. So I'm really interested to see. I I don't I wouldn't know which where to put my money on any of the bets you've just mentioned and, or any of the ones that N26 is cooking up. Uh, but I'm really interested interested to see which ones kind of pan out as the fintech business model kind of evolution. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. Yeah, agree with your point, Daniel. Fantastic. Um, okay, so um, in the interest of transparency, I asked everyone for one question. Daniel came with three, <laughs> and he said, "Pick one." And I looked looked at them all, and they're all really good. So um, let's go through them. Yeah. So I'll, we'll go one by one. Uh, so Daniel's first question was for features providing advice about what users should do with their finances, how much of the logic should we expose to the user? And is there an ethical component to this question? So Daniel, some context behind the question, please. My wife my wife thinks I'm overly prone to giving double-barreled questions. So <laughs> apologies for that one. Um, I guess this one, this one kind of relates back to a an ongoing train of thought I have. I'm, I'm very interested in behavioral economics and the the sort of psychological underpinnings of what we do as product people, and particularly in the fintech space, I think, because it's such a it's such an area where it's very easy to assume that people don't know what they're talking about, and that it's better to um, take on the responsibility for them uh, it's sort of it's very easy to start treating users as though they, they don't know what they they don't know anything I think um, and this becomes I think both a an interesting user experience question but also potentially an ethical question of is it okay to make decisions for the user that they may not have made themselves if they had the full information um, even though maybe you know better is it okay to assume that? Um, is it better to assume that in some cases? I don't have the answers here. I uh, I just wanted to sort of torment a few people with some uh, with some philosophical conundra uh, this Thursday evening. Uh, I'm babble. I think first. Yeah, yeah I, I, super super interesting question because, I, as you say, like it's it's easy to just go and say, ah, we know what's best, uh, right? Um, for me. Uh, Depends on on the user, uh, but I would say like if if you're very transparent uh, as to uh, what kinds of advice uh, you could give or how you could uh, help uh, the consumers out, I, I think that's that's a good starting point. And also always bearing in mind like uh, why are we doing stuff? Like if it's to hook them to to a positive uh, financial behavior, well, yeah, you can argue for uh, we're doing it for the user, but still still again like uh, leaving that freedom of choice to them to be transparent. Okay, so. Uh, we can help you out with this by allowing us to do this um, because a lot of people think that like finances are an uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable thing. Uh, it's like, yeah, I, I want to improve financially. I don't know how to, or ah, it's, it's just, um, uh, it's not for me. Uh, so if you can like clearly show uh, why you're doing stuff and how you can help out, I think uh, that makes the ethical part of it a bit easier uh, leaving it up to them. It's my take on it. Bogdan? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I guess I agree, it's a uh, rather philosophical question, right? There's uh, no right and wrong here. And um, 
uh, yeah, there, there, there exists some regulation on um, treating customer fairly and ethics, right, that we need to comply with. But of course, uh, it's just sort of scratching the surface, right? And uh, companies can go much deeper into these questions. And I think they will they will go there. And uh, at some point, I think it's going to be a very important competitive advantage for uh, companies. Uh, again, there's no right and wrong here. So companies will need to formulate their positions and ethics should sit very deep in product vision for what we built, I think. And uh, similar to how um, in the area of sustainability, people are now talking and, and getting certified. Uh, uh, you know, have you, you, you've probably heard of B Corp and stuff in the US, probably in, in, in um, uh, Europe too. So maybe something similar is going to uh, appear in, in uh, financial ethics, financial sustainability uh, field. Um, yeah, yeah it, yeah, it almost feels like um, uh, we will soon transition from, you know, simply looking at metrics um, to thinking more deeply about uh, ethical stuff and uh, you know for sure, streamlining our vision. I think it, it's it's an important question to any internet company, right? Not 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 just fintech. Um, I think all of the big techs, Facebook, etc., are, are receiving a lot of attention from regulators in the U.S. now, from Senate, etc. Because uh, again, their their culture and the approach is to look into numbers only, right? They don't have ethics people in, in house, and uh, unlike fintechs, they don't even have basic regulation on uh, uh, treating customer fairly and ethics and all. Yeah, so super important topic. I think it's going to become more and more important. At some point, it's going to be competitive advantage for companies who 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 solved it pro properly. Yeah, I think. Uh... It's very interesting because we were facing this challenge as well, because especially at Klarna, because uh, uh, we have to do this uh, credit checks from time to time, especially for large payments uh, uh, to make sure that customers themselves can pay for it. And uh, we do not get into situations where we have a lot of defaults, let's say. And uh, this is where like we would do this kind of checks uh, in the background. And if it's if the customer is not eligible, we would show them the message. And we were getting, of course, a lot of questions uh, from the customers as well. So what Klarna did very interestingly is to offer a very transparent way to the customers to check actually what is their purchase power. Now, this is like, I think the transparency is very important here and this allowed actually customers to understand uh like what is what is the eligibility criteria uh what is their like purchasing power and uh, why we cannot offer a uh, certain amount uh for the for their purchase basically uh that helped us a lot actually to create uh, a good customer experience uh, of course the question of uh this if it's ethical or not, I think for, for banking industry, this has to be done uh, even from the customer's point of view, because it's to their advantage that uh, they would understand what they can buy and what they cannot. Um, if we have a lot of defaults, then we may, may end up into a very bad financial situation, actually, not just for the company, but for the community or for the, for the customers as well, which uh, is something we need to avoid. Uh, apart from that, I think uh, when the corona situation started and everything, uh, 
Uh, we also made sure that uh, these options are quite flexible so that if some customers cannot pay their dues, et cetera, we would help them uh, to, uh, to really have these flexible options and uh, have, like making sure that they don't suffer because of the pandemic and crisis. Um, so I think ultimately two, two points that uh, comes to my mind is that you read again, you need, need to be very transparent um, towards the customers, actually provide them tools to let them check actually uh, what uh, can they buy and why we are, why we may reject them actually at a certain point. And uh, of course, the other point is the whole space of fraud prevention, anti-money laundering and everything comes into the play as well, which is also very ethical from the, uh, uh, from the point of view of uh, counterterrorism and uh, financial liability that we would have towards uh, uh, towards the regulators, uh, towards the government as well. And that is something we need to manage as well, uh, making sure that we do those checks and we try to be as transparent as possible, but sometimes that may not be possible. And uh, we could offer a good message towards the customers that what is the reason uh, if they can check where they can check, provide them tools and making sure that, okay, how can they really, uh, how can they understand um, the reasoning behind the uh, decisions that banking industry or fintech uh, company would take for them, actually. That's my, uh, my take. I guess following up on that then, Rashil, um, I guess there's a, an interesting tension here between the business's interest and the users, though, and taking the ethical component. I imagine that there's predictive power in something like which country you're from or with which ethnicity you are or which gender you are. Is this sort of the sort of thing that you expose to the user as being part of the decision criteria um, because it's something they can't change? Uh, so A, do you expose it? B, should you expose it? C, should you even use it in the model? Um, are my sort of devil's advocate questions to you here? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think uh, definitely not. Uh, that's, that is something uh, we, we wouldn't do or we shouldn't do. However, in Germany, uh, you know, uh, because you are, <laughs> I mean, you guys know that regulators actually ask you to do that as part of the KYC. So there is a component of regulation as well. But uh, ethically, I think uh, we don't do that in other countries where it's not required. We make sure that however we can check the credit records and everything, uh, regardless of their origins or ethnicity or gender or anything, we, we do that, of course, based on the data they provide, based on the different kind of uh, uh, connections we have towards external data sources, and then uh, all the fraud checks and uh, uh, anti-money laundering checks and everything would happen. And this is, of course, uh, something where we make sure that uh, it's it's uh, uh, as uh, like uh, how do you say as uh, uh, transparent, but uh, making sure that we don't discriminate against any customers and uh, based on the details they provide. Uh, but of course, in Germany. Uh, this bit different. You have to ask customers, uh, especially when they are signing for regulated products. Uh, not sure how they take it. There is definitely an ethical component of, it, of that. But uh, I'm sure that that is not used for any checks. Uh, that is just for the uh, KYC actually process. That's just part of that actually, from my understanding. 
I mean, it's an interesting tension, though, because you're right. In some jurisdictions, the regulator provides you very nice cover as a bank, but there's a good business reason to use these information in your risk modeling. If there's predictive power in gender, ethnicity, country of origin, that's money you could not lose to fraud, to credit losses, etc. And yet on the other side, there's the ethical component of, well, these are immutable characteristics of the users. Should we really be discriminating based on them? Um, and so I guess I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to point out that I guess I guess my question concerns how will fintech companies walk this tightrope? Um, is, is the direction perhaps that regulators step in and say, you must not discriminate based on these characteristics? Or as Bogdan sort of suggested, is there actually a business competitive advantage to explicitly saying, look, we are the ethical company, we won't discriminate, come to us with your money? Uh, any any, I know we're running out of time, Chris, but um, I'm fascinated to hear if anyone has any sort of guesses as to which direction the industry will evolve on this question. Yeah, uh, yeah. if I may comment on this. So I think yeah, the entire reason of uh, scoring and uh, you know, using various inputs to understand whether the, 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 this is eligible customer and so on, it's also sort of the best way we can solve lack of trust, right? Really, because if, if we trusted our customer, if we knew the guy, uh, like it was in the old uh, sort of world where everyone lived in, a, in the same village, let's say, right? Uh, there was no need for, for, uh, for scoring, right? There was trust and then uh, we could land or not land, for example, or refine the price. Um, and, um, and in today's world, pretty much there's no trust. So this is the best way we can solve it, using scoring, using inputs, blah, blah. Uh, there's a new technology, which you are all aware of, uh, I guess, called blockchain, which contains trust as a core component of it, right? Fundamental sort of thing about blockchain. So maybe new technology is going to, to bring trust back and then we would not need to, um, we would not need to, you know, do scoring and uh, solve trust issue using that approach. Yeah, so maybe the, the, there's uh, there's some uh, another way to solve trust issue, I know, but I think it all it all comes down to, to 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 trust really. And I agree. I mean, I think there are definitely data points that uh, that you can use apart from uh, this kind of gender, like country they are coming from, etc. It's like the location, time of buying. There are a lot of patterns that you can recognize. And uh, I think one, another technology actually blockchain is, of course, it's like inbuilt trust is there, but another thing like machine learning can really help here as well. Uh, a lot of companies now are enabling and this kind of uh, machine learning pattern recognition, especially uh, to provide the scoring models and uh, prevent fraud, uh, especially on that aspect. So I think if that evolves uh, farther and uh, it gets better and better, uh, we could really try to avoid um, uh, discriminatory aspects and uh, make sure that we use only uh, data points that uh, uh, that that is based on uh, like some hard uh, data that we can get and uh, uh, still make the still prevent actually all those uh, fraud-like situations and have a better scoring models actually. So that's another kind of input from my side. Yeah, definitely, Rushal, definitely agree with that. Yeah, so if, if we live in a world where there's a lot of data, behavioral data, transactional data, there's no need to use static 
parameter static inputs like uh, race, right, uh, country of origin, etc. So we, if we have um, you know much richer data sets, it's going to be much fair, I think. Uh, so and it's probably going to happen at some point. I mean, at least we're moving in that direction, right? Has anyone got any further points? Right, I think we're just coming to the end of our, our slot and in the interest that everyone probably wants to go and get some dinner or something. Yeah, we will leave it there. So 